Let's all stand together at this time as we reverence the reading of God's Word. We're going to be looking in the Old Testament book of Micah, and uh, I'd invite your attention there. Uh, a message I call in the latter days. Uh, Micah chapter 4 and verse 1. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And may God bless the reading of His Word. It's my prayer. You may be seated. In many ways, this passage in Micah is a companion passage to the much more famous one in Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 4 that says, He shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. President Richard Nixon was uh, sworn into office as president of this country twice. Both times he had his hand on a Bible that was open to this passage, Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 4. Uh, I'm sure because of what it promises, nations shall not rise anymore against nation. and They'll not learn war anymore. Uh, those same words are inscribed on a wall outside the United Nations building in New York City. And uh, the idea of uh, war not being learned, of uh, those former weapons being turned into farm implements, uh, that's a good idea. It represents the hope of many, many people in the world today, and certainly in a way of all of us, peace. Peace. But that's not the only way the Bible reveals the concept. Joel chapter 3 and verse 10 says, Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I'm strong. Uh, exact opposite, by the way. If nothing else, then, these passages remind us of the wisdom of Solomon as he expressed it in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 8. There's a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace. Both are presented in Scripture, by the way. And we see that very clearly demonstrated for us here in this passage. Micah chapter 4 is set in contrast, though, to something that God had been revealing before. And in chapter 3, we're not going to go all the way back through chapter 3. We'll just look at the summary verse in verse 12. 
Because of you, Zion shall be plowed like a field. And that's God speaking to His people. Because of you, Zion is going to be plowed like a field. And He tells us that the mountains then, or the city, Jerusalem, shall become heaps of ruins in the mountain of the temple like the bare hills of the forest. Now Jerusalem was a mighty city. And the hub of that city, the centerpiece of that city was Mount Zion, and that's where the Temple Mount was. This was a busy city, and that was a busy place where the sacrifices and all the religious structure of Judaism was going on. Uh, it must have been very difficult for them to imagine that such a busy place could become barren and desolate. But it happens. Uh, my grandmother... Uh, had uh, come to visit us at one time. I forget now exactly why that we had come there. She was uh, a native of the Camden area. She actually grew up with her parents uh, in a place called Chittister, not far from White Oak Lake. Uh, her mother, my grandma Rob, had uh, grown up and been a part of, raised her family uh, in a part of a sawmill town, a sawmill community. She lived in company housing, and my grandmother stayed there, my great-grandmother, as long as she could. My grandmother decided that she wanted to go out there and see the old home place, see if she could find it. It had been many years since she was there, and we were driving. It wasn't far out of the way. We cut down toward Chittister, began to look. Now remember, this is the place where she had grown up as a child. We drove down this road, turned off this road, got down by it, and she said, it ought to be here. Turn around. I think we've missed it. We went back. This was before everything gated up like it is now. If you go down there now, it's all behind uh, timber company access gates. Folks, all we could see were pine trees. It was once a bustling community. We finally came up on a hill, and she said, this has to be it. I, I remember this straight stretch. I remember the hill. This has to be it. But all was there was pine trees. What was once a bustling town and community, there's not a trace of it left. God was saying that to Jerusalem. Now, if you want a more uh, up-to-date example, something you can look up on Google, uh, uh, check out uh, the, the Chernobyl exclusion zone. Not now, when you get home. Uh, uh, check it out. Those of you who were alive back in 1986 remember when Chernobyl blew up and uh, there's an area there about 1,000 square miles uh, that has been declared uninhabitable. If you ever want to go to a place that not many people go, I understand they're giving actual tourist trips there now, so that's a great thing. I mean, that'd be a cool thing. Where are you going on vacation? Chernobyl? <laughs> okay, I'll see if you make it back. All right, you know, uh, interesting place. Uh, the vegetation, of course, is taking it back. 30-something years will do that. You can drive down almost any road in South Arkansas. You'll be amazed at how many houses are in disrepair growing up. You don't have to go to South Arkansas. You can drive around our very community. It doesn't take long once a place is uninhabited for it to grow up. That's what God was saying to him. Jerusalem is going to be plowed like a field. It's going to be a heap of ruins. It'll be like a barren hill in the midst of a forest. It's going to grow back up. Seventy years of uninhabited was going to do that. 
to this proud city. Other passages would speak of that same thing we'll see in a few moments. Our passage, though, is not going to just settle down in kind of a morbid thing, talking about the time of God's judgment and how the desolation was going to be brought to the nation. That, that's how he summed up chapter 3. But then came the words of chapter 4. In a time that God promised restoration to Israel. Part of that, of course, would come after the Babylonian captivity and the cities would be reclaimed and Nehemiah and Ezra would lead people back and the temple would be rebuilt and the walls would be restored. And, and thank God for it because Jesus came to that town. <laughs> All right? Uh, that's where your Messiah and mine died on the cross for your sins and for mine and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. We're thankful for that time of restoration. But I think Micah was looking beyond all that when he talked about the latter days. Many of the things that he would speak of in this passage are yet to be fulfilled. And yet they stand as an example of how that God works to move a time of judgment and pass that time of judgment into a time of healing, to take a, a time of calamity and turn it into a time of hope. I love what Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 3 where he promised a time when God would appoint unto them that mourn in Zion to give them beauty for ashes. Love that. The oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. Notice, they shall build the old wastes. They shall raise up the former desolations. They shall repair the waste cities, the desolations of many generations. In the midst of this prophetic message then for Israel, God gives us a marvelous demonstration of how He works to give His people beauty for ashes. Several principles are demonstrated here in this passage we'll look at this morning. First of all, there are times when God has to tear down in order to build up. There are times when God has to tear down in order to build up. Now, He's promised that in Micah chapter 3 and verse 12. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become heaps of ruins. The mountains of the temple like the bare hills of the forest. Lamentation chapter 5 and verse 17. For this our heart is faint. For these things our eyes are dim. Because of the mountain of Zion, which is desolate, and the foxes walk upon it. Sometimes, you see, God has to tear down in order to build up. And this principle is demonstrated throughout Scripture. Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 10, See, I have set this day, I have this day set thee over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out and to pull down and to destroy and to throw down, to build and to plant. Now, that's speaking of Jeremiah. God had called him to preach his word and to be a prophet. And he describes four things that his preaching was going to accomplish. He said, I've called you, Jeremiah, uh, to root out, to pull down, to destroy, and to throw down, and to build and to plant. 
Now, I can't tell you that everything God wanted us to notice in that passage was uh, tied up in the fact that he used four words to talk about the things that he was going to do to tear down, to build, to pull down, and and only two words, (laughs) to build and to plant. But I think we ought to pay attention. Uh, God says it's going to be twice, twice as much of your time is going to be spent tearing down as building up. Uh, That's because, folk, any preacher can tell you, and I'll tell you too, it's way harder to pull down than it is to build up. If you can ever get people on their knees at the altar acknowledging their sin before God, then getting them saved is easy. Oh, listen, once they get down to that place where they recognize there's something in their life that is hindering them, something that's holding them back, something that's keeping them from being what God wants them to be. But that's the hard part. Hosea chapter 6 and verse 1, the people responded to the promise of judgment of God. Come, he said, let us return to the Lord, for he is torn, but he will heal us. He is stricken, but he will bind us up. You see, these people realize, they recognize something that we must know as well, that if God has broken you, only God can fix you. If God has torn you, only God can heal you. If you ever get that down... You're well along your way to receiving that time of God's restoration. Our problem, you see, is we end up spending a lot of our life trying to fix the very things that God has allowed into our life or brought in our life that are designed to drive us to Him. Because He and He alone is the source of our help. If God has broken us, only God can fix us. I wonder how much time that we've all spent asking God to fix, quickly fix, the very things that He has allowed or brought in order to bring us back to Him. Our blessings sometimes provide a lot of opportunities for us to jump on them and ride them away from God. And if we are riding our blessings away from God, don't be surprised if God moves to take the wheels out from under us until we get back on the road that's headed toward Him. We tend to look at hours and days, weeks at best. Remember, though, that God looks at decades and centuries and at generations yet unborn. It's really a simple thing when we think about it. We find the perfect place to build, perfect place. But there are trees there. They've got to be cleared out if we're going to build on it. There's something else there. It's got to move. Maybe we find the perfect building site, but there's some old house, some old structure rotting down. It has to be torn out of the way. Maybe we buy a house. It's almost what we want. But we watch those fixer-upper shows one too many times. First thing you know, we got to tear all that stuff out. How many of you know that it's a whole lot harder to tear it out? If you ever get it all torn out, then it's easy to build it back. We know what that's like. Of course, our problem is, is that we don't always know really what needs to be torn down and what needs to be held on to. 
there was an old song uh, that was once called uh, uh, Yellow Taxi, I believe, Big Yellow Taxi. And it lamented, we don't, all, don't always seem to go, that you don't know what you got till it's gone. We paved paradise and put up a parking lot. Remember that? Some of you do. We don't always know what really needs to stay and what needs to go. Let me tell you something this morning, brothers and sisters in Christ. God knows. God knows. And when God moves to tear something down, it needs to go. But now listen, God's not just tearing it down. He's going to build something else in its place, something better. God always knows then what real progress is. So God knows then. Sometimes you have to tear down in order to build. The second thing that he demonstrates in this passage is that God can bring victory and defeat from the exact same place. God can bring victory and defeat from the exact same place in our lives. We saw it there in verse 12. Zion's going to be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become heaps of ruins. But then Micah chapter 4 and verse 1 will come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established. Very same place. I'm going to turn this mountain into a barren wasteland surrounded by forest. But in that same place, there's going to be victory, and that mountain will be once again established. Hosea chapter 1 and verse 10, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered, and it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, You are not my people. In the place where it was said unto them, You are not my people. In the place where it was said unto them, You are not my people. It shall be said unto them, you are the sons of the living God. Same place. God can work in the same place. The same place where there was a terrible defeat and turn it into a great place of victory. What made the difference? Of course, it's spelled out for us in Micah chapter 4 and verse 5. God said, For all people will walk, every one, in the name of his God, and we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. You see the difference between defeat and victory was in whose God they were following. There were many who were uh, choosing gods for themselves and making God uh, be whatever it is that they wanted to be. And that's not just an ancient problem. It's going on in the streets of America every single day these days as things are attributed to God that God didn't have anything to do with. Everyone will walk in the paths, the steps of his own God. That's the path of defeat. But we, he said, shall walk in the path of the Lord our God. When we walk in the name of the Lord our God, that is a place of victory. Now, sometimes we talk about the foolishness of youth, and rightly so. The Bible mentions that a whole lot. But I'm going to tell you something. Youth don't have a, a trademark, don't have a corner on the market, and walking foolishly. I understand a lot of young people are rejecting God. That's right. But a lot of old people are rejecting God, too. And the strange reality that we see, that I see, happen again and again is so many young people who in their younger years, they serve God, they love God, they love the church, they go to church, they love the Bible, and they live for Him. And as they get older, they turn away. Some bitter experience happens. Some terrible thing happens. Pull them away from God. Pull them away from God's service. 
pull them away from God's church. Some of you in this building today might have been experiencing that very thing. As some time of defeat came into your life and pulled you away from the Lord. Young people, you may be hearing the siren song of your, of your peers calling you, filling your ears, filling your hearts with some version of truth that's not the truth at all. Don't you listen. The path of victory is to walk in the name of the Lord our God. The sure path of defeat is when we turn away from Him. But the great news is that though we might suffer a time of defeat, though we might turn away from God, this passage is telling us that God can bring victory out of that same place of defeat. And the very things that maybe turned your heart away from God and His truth might be the thing that God uses, same thing, to turn you back to Him. Once you turn away from Him, there's nothing but pain and misery and gloom and despair in your future. Many a prodigal has come right back to the father's house to find that that place that he couldn't wait to get away from was the one place where he knew there was hope and love and help. Let that be your story this morning. God knows how to bring victory out of the place of defeat. All we have to do is turn around, turn to Him. Micah chapter 4 and verse 6, God works through a limping remnant. Verse 6, In that day saith the Lord, will I assemble her that halteth. The word halt means to limp. And I will gather her that is driven out, and her that I have afflicted. This is talking about the nation of Israel. And I will make her that halted a remnant, and her that was cast far off a strong nation. And the Lord shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth, even forever. God works through a limping remnant. God gave us no more uh, a noble example of this in the Old Testament than the story of Jacob. Maybe you remember how that Jacob was leaving his father's house just one step ahead of his brother who promised that as soon as their dad died, he was going to kill him. He decided it's a good time to go visit the kinfolks. You know, and, and, and he saw a great vision of God as he realized that the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac could also be the God of Jacob. That was a great experience. Oh, but then all those many years later and all those wives and all those kids, he's coming back and he's going back to that promised land. And it was there that the Lord met him, the angel of the Lord, and he wrestled with the Jehovah angel all night long. Now, how many of you know this morning that that angel could have ended that fight that time, that quick, any time? I wonder how long... Sometimes God lets us fight until the fight's all out of us. Let me tell you something. You're going to fight God. You better bring your lunch. It's going to be a long battle. Fought God all night. Morning, he hit him in the thigh so that his thigh was out of joint. To this day, Orthodox Jewish people do not eat from that sinew, the meat around the sinew of any animal as a tribute to the time when God 
broke Jacob so he could bless him. He got the power of the angel. He did. The power of God. He got a name change from Jacob to Israel. All those things were great things. But along with that incredible power of God, he got something else. From that day on, he limped every step he took. And he died, the Bible says, leaning, leaning on his staff. That old shepherd, still limping. Aren't you glad that God uses a limping remnant? You say, I've, battled. I've done battle with God. He broke me. I've got the scars to prove it. That's fine. God uses scarred people. Ask the Apostle Paul. God uses broken people. Ask Jacob. God uses people with the past. Ask David. Stories all over the Scripture. God works. God works through a limping remnant. Then lastly, this morning, God works even when we don't understand. We have no idea of what he's doing. That's all right. God does. Verse 9. Now why dost thou cry out aloud? Is there no king in thee? Is thy counselor perished? For pains have taken thee as a woman in travail. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in travail. For now shalt thou go forth out of the city, and thou shalt dwell in the field. And thou shalt go even to Babylon. There shalt thou be delivered. There the Lord shall redeem thee from the hands of thine enemies. The Lord tells them at this moment in time that right now you are are laboring. You're like a woman in childbirth. You're experiencing uh, all the pain that comes with that. But you're going to give birth to something, and what you're going to give birth to is your redemption. What you're going to give birth to is your salvation. God says, you're going to Babylon, and you'll give birth there because there, he says, I'll save you. There, he says, I will redeem you. There, the nation will be delivered from her enemies. Seventy years of captivity was in their future. That was not a very popular message. Jeremiah got put in prison and almost killed for preaching it. I'll tell you, we, we quote Jeremiah 29, 11 all the time. I know the plans I have for you. That's right. That's what God told them. God said, I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for wholeness and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. If you read the context of that passage, what he was telling them was that my plans for you include Babylon. It includes that the nation is going to fall. That Jerusalem is going to grow up like a forest. That the foxes are going to run through the streets of the city. It will be uninhabited because the nation is going to fall. But what you don't understand, God says, is that I'm doing this to give you a future and a hope. If I left you alone where you are, there'd be no future. I've got to tear it down. So I can build it. I know what I'm doing, God said. I know what I'm doing. What I'm doing is to give you a future and hope. 
There are times when we experience such calamities and it's hard for us to see any hope in it. I read one time about a man who took his first, first ocean voyage and he got so seasick. I mean, almost as soon as they were out of port, it was horrible. After a few days, it was so bad that a friend of his actually spoke up and said, you know, man said, nobody has ever died of seasickness. And the man said, don't tell me that. The hope of death is all that's keeping me going. <laughs> oh, yeah, we all know what it's like to feel like uh, we'd have to get better to die. I'm too sick to die. Got to get better. Hope of death. Well... God had a plan to make things better. It wasn't going to be that week. It wasn't going to be that month. It wasn't going to be that year. And it wasn't going to be in most of them's lifetime. Seventy years. But I know what I'm doing. And I'm going to use this to redeem the nation so that even when we don't understand, even when we don't see it, even when we can't explain it, when we've cried out to God to fix it and it's been a week or a month or a year or ten, just remember, all we see is hours and days and weeks. God sees decades and sometimes generations yet unborn. couple of things then to wrap this up for us today. And I want to talk to you just for a moment about the prophetic application. Let's understand that when we bring up this passage and it's talking about what's going to happen in the latter days, it has a particularly prophetic application to the nation of Israel. It promises specifically that time that we know as the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. And I'm glad to be able to stand here as I have many times before and remind you today that this world is not going to go its own way and it is not going to have its own way because Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, is coming back. He has promised that the throne of David is going to be reestablished on Zion and that he, David's greater son, the Messiah, is going to reign on that very throne. All the nations of the world will go there to hear the word of the Lord. The law of the world will be ushered out from Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Jesus Christ has said it. The Bible has promised it. It's right here in, my, in Micah chapter 4. And it's coming. He's coming. Something to remember in these days of a growing anti-Semitism. It's odd sometimes to think about there's so many voices denouncing racism, and rightly so. But meanwhile, anti-Semitism is rising. It's a strange thing, but it shouldn't surprise us. The Bible promises it. It's good for us then to look at the promises of these passages and remind ourselves that God has a plan for Israel and that the plan of the future of the world does not operate independently of God's plan for the nation of Israel. He has it. It's coming. It's going to happen. 
It's a good time to remind ourselves of what Paul said in Romans chapter 11 and verse 15. He said, if the casting away of them and the them in that passage is Israel, if the casting away of Israel be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? God is going to work a miracle on this planet when Israel is restored. It's a wonderful thing. Great promise. The millennial reign of Christ. But our time this morning has been spent primarily not so much on the prophetic side of things, although we certainly could, but on the personal side of things. We serve the God who brings beauty from ashes, the God who tears down to build up, who turns the place of defeat into the place of victory, the God who works through a limping remnant, and He works even when we don't know He's working in ways that we can't see or understand. He works to bring us back to Himself when we've left Him. And when we return to Him, He unleashes the power of His blessing into our life, in the lives of our family. I wonder today, are there those in this service who have been convicted because you've let something come in your life that moved you away from God? I wonder today if there's some here in this service that though do you know about God, you know about Jesus, you've heard about Him all your life, yet you've never trusted Him as your own personal Savior. You don't need to come back to God, folks. You need to come to God. The Bible says, come to Jesus. Come unto me. Come unto me. All you that labor and are heavy laden. Been trying to whip that sin all by yourself. You failed. Been carrying the burden of your guilt all by yourself. It's unbearable. I want you to know Jesus says, come unto me. He loves you. He died on the cross for your sins. He was buried, rose again to assure you that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. Maybe you've received him as your Savior, and this will be the day when you come forward to make your public profession of faith in Jesus Christ and follow him in baptism. This is your time. Maybe you've been attending this church for a long time, and yet you know, you know that God is leading you to become a part of this fellowship. Let it be your time. But the bill is going to come lead us in an invitational song. If God is leading you to make a decision today, make it. Make it. Find out how God gives us beauty for ashes. Let's stand together.